and welcome to episode two of Stories of the Sisterhood. Hey, welcome. I'm Holly. And I'm Alicia. And today's episode is actually the first of two parts of a recording we did at Cate's Cemetery, which is in Cardiff. It's a very large Victorian cemetery. And I was talking, Alicia unfortunately couldn't be there no, this week. I think I was working. I can't remember yeah. what I was doing that day, but not available. It was very sad. Um, it would have been better with you there, obviously. Oh, I am sorry to have missed it, especially listening to the recording now. Just like, oh, <laughs> missed opportunities. Uh, yeah, so I was talking to one of the members of the Friends of Cate's Cemetery group called Gordon, and he was just telling me about some of the in unusual women that are buried in the cemetery and what they've been able to find out through their research. And there's quite a few characters. Yeah. I think it's safe to say. Definitely by sound of it. Because I'm always one of those people that's... I wouldn't say that I, like, love graveyards, but I find them quite interesting places. Definitely. You know, when you read, like, the inscriptions on the tombstones and, like, sometimes there's quite unusual ones or... And you just, like, want to find out more about it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I went through a walk through Cate Cemetery a few months ago and it was so nice. It's huge and, like, as well. I wasn't expecting it to be so nice because no. it's almost like being in a park um, because it's like set, it's a bit away from the road mm. and uh, there's lots of trees and just nature. Uh, but yeah, I also really enjoyed the sort of graveyardy aspect, but definitely not at night. I no. can't handle anything. I think it's shut at night most graveyards I think it's shut at night but, but I can't handle anything I think I remember so. reading that didn't Victorians like set out graveyards to be like parks and they would just kind of go for walks in them like they were parks I don't know mm. I might have got that wrong I think I remember reading that somewhere I don't know I, I can't speak to that okay well yeah anyways it is very nice it's, yeah we'd recommend a visit yeah and during the recording you can kind of hear the bird song in the background and yeah it's quite yeah it's quite relaxing yeah, it doesn't um, sound like you're essentially between two main roads. No. Yeah, it's quite incredible. Uh, yeah, anyway, so I uh, hope you enjoy this first part of the episode. I'm joined by Gordon from the Friends of Cate Cemetery. Hi, Gordon. Hello. Thank you for agreeing to help me today. Yeah, good pleasure. So... We'll start off by just, uh, if you could give us a brief rundown of the history of the cemetery for fellow tombstone tourists. I've heard that phrase recently. I don't know if that's, uh, <laughs> don't know if you've it's, heard that one. I, I've not heard it, but it's a good one. It, okay. it, it certainly works. Yeah. Um, yeah, to look at the cemetery, one's got to look at what was happening to Cardiff at the time. So Cardiff at the beginning of the uh, 19th century uh, had a population of um, about two and a half to three thousand. Uh, by 1831, it had grown to six thousand, and at around that time, the developed part of the town was between the castle and uh, what today is Central Square. So really, very small. Well, within another 30 years, it had grown to over 30,000. Wow. And uh, the council was becoming concerned about burial space. Uh, in 1840, it bought a, a one-acre plot at Adamsdown. And you can see that today as the Adamsdown Cemetery Park. Uh, but by 1849, it was clear that this was going to be too small. Um, that was probably helped by a cholera outbreak uh, in that year. Uh, 
which meant there was a quite a high death rate. Mm. Cholera is quite common in sort of growing cities at this time, I imagine. It was. The, yeah. the, 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 what we would call hygienic systems for supplying water and getting rid of uh, sewage were non-existent. Mm. Um, so this is where Cate's come in. Uh, in 1859, the burial board purchased 30 acres of arable farmland, uh, at that time well outside the city, um, and it was, uh, contained two farms, Weddell Farm and Barossa. By 1871, the town's population had grown again to nearly 40,000. Um, and within five years, the council could see that more space would be needed. So they then bought an adjacent land, another 30 acres. And it wasn't long again uh, before the burials were needed in this land. By about 1895, uh, the whole of the extra area had been given over to burials. And it was apparent that even more space would be required. Uh, by, 18, by 1901, Cardiff's population had reached around 180,000. And by 1896, the council was looking to extend the cemetery again. They identified another 45 acres to the north of the existing site, which at that time was on the opposite side of the Taffel Railway. It was all bought by 1898, and the lower half was allocated for burials in 1913. Uh, the rest of it was used as allotment gardens until about 1918, um, and then it all became uh, what we now see as the cemetery. There's a piece on the other side of the Taffel Railway, um, now the other side of the um, Eastern Avenue, uh, is what we was then called the New Cemetery, or now called the New Cemetery anyway. Uh, there was a bridge over the railway originally, which joined the two sections. And if you visit the other side of the cemetery, you'll see that uh, there's a plot of World War I war graves, um, which was in a prime position facing that bridge. The bridge was demolished when Eastern Avenue was constructed, uh, so now the war graves now seem in a rather out-of-the-way out corner. Was there a particular reason why they grouped them together? Were, were there bodies all sort of repatriated at the same time or? Ah, the First World War bodies generally weren't repatriated. Oh right. So the only people buried there are soldiers who had been brought back to this country because they were injured. Oh I and see. died in hospitals in Cardiff. Um, so so uh, very few of them are locals to Cardiff and uh, some of them are in fact from places like Australia and Canada. Wow. Far from home. Far from home, that's right. Mm. Uh, most British war dead from the First World War are buried in the huge cemeteries in France Ypres, and Belgium. Yeah. Yes. Oh, of course. Yeah, now you say it sounds, uh, sounds obvious, but I yes. never thought of it. Um, so at the time the cemetery was built in 1859, uh, three chapels were provided. Uh, two chapels which you can still see today, uh, the Protestant and Nonconformist chapels, and uh, a Catholic chapel, which was in a separate location nearer to Allen's Bank Road. Uh, sadly, that uh, deteriorated in condition, and in the 1980s, had lost its roof um, and was falling down and was completely demolished for safety reasons. 
So all you can see today is a, a small roundabout with trees growing in it. Uh, but there is a, a notice board which gives you pictures of the uh, chapel and how it looked. Today we are going to be talking about some of the interesting or unusual women that are buried in the cemetery. Uh, there's lots of women here whose lives would have been um, intimately connected to war and conflict. So we'll start off by talking about the Barbier daughters. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Barbier, as far as I know it's correct, yes. Okay. It is a French name. Um, the Barbier family had, had moved to Cardiff when uh, Father Paul uh, became a lecturer at the newly established Cardiff University. Uh, subsequently became professor of French at the university. Uh, there were eight children and uh, we know that um, Isabelle Eugenie Marie, who was born in 1885, the seventh of the eight children, trained as a nurse at Bristol Royal Infirmary. In 1914, she sailed for France on the first boat to leave England with the British Expeditionary Force. And it was probably during that voyage that her capabilities were noted. And she then continued to work as the personal assistant to Maud McCarthy throughout the war. The name Maud McCarthy might not mean anything, uh, but she was an Australian who'd served in the First Boer War, the Second Boer War, and was appointed principal matron at the War Office. Wow, she, she's a big deal. She, she, she was a big deal, that's right. Uh, she, she was in charge um, of all the uh, nursing staff at helping the British Expeditionary Force in France and Flanders and took charge of the whole area, basically from the Channel to the Mediterranean, wherever British and Allied nurses were working. Uh, the number of nurses in her charge uh, in 1914 was 516, but by the end of the war, it was over 6,000. Wow. And her chief assistant was Isabelle Eugenie Marie. Uh, it's rather strange that after the war, Isabel uh, decided to become a nun and she joined the Order of St Don Dominic at Stone or near Stoke-on-Trent. But she lived to quite a ripe old age of 96 and only died in 1962, 1982, wow. sorry. Do you think maybe she decided to become a nun because of all the horrors and destruction that she had seen? And I would think it's, it's almost certainly that was the case. Yeah. She'd seen enough of what uh, man can do to man and mm. uh, decided she wanted Remove to herself from the life. world. Yes, right. Don't blame her. Um, two other sisters uh, were, were prominent in... Uh, they also went across to the continent and were prominent in looking after refugees in Belgium. Um, and another sister, uh, Marie, um, was to go on to marry uh, Ralph Ayant de Gaius, another Frenchman. Mm. Um, and their son... Uh, came on to become a member of the SOE in World War Two. So yeah. what's the uh, SOE? What does that uh, stand for? Uh, Special Operations Executive. Oh, wow. So these were the people that were, were going into France and, and organising the resistance in France. Uh, so there's another link to the Second World War from Jacques, uh, through um, Marie, one of the daughters mm. of um, Paul Barbier. So... What, so is it Isabel who was assistant to assistant to Maud 
Project Maud McCarthy. Isabel Eugenie yeah. uh, was the assistant to Maud McCarthy. So what kind of uh, duties would that have involved, do you know? Uh, I don't really know. I think oh, she was basically trained as a nurse. Yeah. But I think she must have been largely involved in administrating mm. and, and, and organising the nurses. So you'd say she was like a, a, a matron in a hospital, I would imagine. Uh, mm. But clearly trusted Big job. largely by Maud <laughs> yeah. McCarthy. Yes. Mm. Okay, so next we're going to talk about Barbara Williams. This is quite a sad, sad story. Moving on to the Second World War now. That, that's right. Yeah. Second World War, and Barbara Sarah Watkin Williams, um, you'll find her grave with a War Graves Commission headstone, but it's erected in a family plot. And Barbara was a niece of Jack Peterson, uh, who was a famous boxer. Uh, Barbara joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force in 1939 at the age of 16. Wow. By the following year, she was an aircraft woman first class, serving at RAF Digby in Lincolnshire. But in the chaos of a bombing raid on the airfield in June 1940, she was actually hit by a truck and died at the age of 17. 17? 17. That's so, so she, young. She's probably one of the youngest female victims, uh, yeah. service people um, of the Second World War. She, if she was able to advance that quickly, she obviously had quite a bright future ahead of her. I th think what you can say is she would have been an asset to any armed force because she was clearly very keen, mm. um, committed. So it is a great loss, yes. Okay, now we're going to talk about... This is actually a real mystery because we really don't know much about this woman at all. Um, there's lots of intrigue surrounding her. Claire Darris. There is another um, lady that was prominent in the Second World War, whether you're interested. Yeah. Um, there's a strange memorial which is just behind the library. Um, it's strange because it probably has more letters inscribed on it than any other memorial in the cemetery, even though it's not particularly big. And it's, it's more like the family almanac of uh, the Larkham family. And on there, it tells you that uh, Lillian Olive Larkham uh, worked for the SAS war crimes team. Wow. Um, for many years at the end, after the end of the Second World War, this team remained a secret, even within the SAS itself. 1944, an SAS <coughs> operation in the Vosges Mountains on the France-German border went wrong, ran out of food, weapons and ammunition, and when the unit eventually pulled back through the lines, 31 men were missing. In mid-1945, an intelligence unit set out to discover the fate of the missing men and to bring those responsible to justice. Uh, it's thought that uh, Olive, Lillian Olive, was involved in that uh, operation. Uh, it's apparent from the information on the headstone, and we have very little other information other than that appears on the headstone, uh, that she was um, involved in other operations earlier in the war, um, parach parachuted into uh, various locations in the Balkans and Italy, and uh, that she was also a linguist, which would have been a great asset. Yeah, of course. Uh, but uh, it's rather strange that if, if people were involved in that sort of op operation, uh, then 
there's still an embargo on uh, publishing information about what they did. Even now? Even now. Wow. Uh, so although we've tried very hard to find out more about what must have been a very special woman, uh, we've found very little other than the hints that the headstone gives in, in two lines on the headstone. Mm. What was her name? Lillian Olive? Larkin. Lillian Olive Larkin. If anyone's listening to this who is able to find out a bit more about Lillian Olive Larkin, please get in touch. Because that sounds like, I mean, just movie material. <laughs> that's, that's correct, yes. <laughs> okay, so... Sorry, we were going The mystery on. woman, Claire Darris. Yes, um, we, we found, about, found out about uh, our mystery woman, Claire Darris, um, when somebody came across some newspaper reports. These go back to 1918, and uh, it talks about the body of a, a young lady being found um, in, a, in a brook in the, what is now uh, the Ely area of Cardiff. Her body had probably been um, lying there for a couple of days, uh, but when they carried out investigations to find out what had happened, it appeared that she'd arrived in Barry at the beginning of January on a steamer that had come from Archangel in the north of Russia. She and this would have been in 19... This was, ni well, 1917 she would 19, have left. Okay, so she'd left Russia in 1917. Yeah, <laughs> should provide a bit of a clue. It, it, it provides a big <laughs> clue, yes. I mean, uh, she claims that her husband was a lieutenant in the French army attached to the Russian Imperial Army in St. Petersburg. Uh, so she gave her name as Claire Darris, and she claimed to be French. But there seems to be no evidence to corroborate this. Uh, the ship put into Barry for repairs. It was actually heading for France. A local police inspector uh, saw her on board twice in the first few days, but then only when he was called upon to identify the body in a mortuary on the 22nd of January. Uh, an engineer employed by the local council actually found the body in Cairo Brook at the bottom of what would have been then Ely Racecourse. The area is now occupied by Trelai Park. Uh, an investigation was carried out and concluded that the body must have been washed in by the tide and deposited when the water receded. Now, the body was fully dressed and expensively attired. Uh, she wore white silk blouse, silk chemise. Uh, this was embroidered with gold lace trimmings and a corset embroidered with red roses. Uh, she had high-heeled lace, high lace-up boots, and her hat had the name of the maker, which was a St. Petersburg firm. A search of the body revealed a gold brooch set with a diamond and various other um, items of jewellery. So it's clear that she hadn't died as a result of a, a robbery or anything like that. Um, at the coroner's court... Uh, there was reference made to a box containing the lady's personal effects which had been taken off the boat. Uh, and about six weeks after her death, a handbag was discovered and found to contain notes and other valuables, valuables to the extent of about £200. Which in those days, well, now would, I don't know, a lot more now. A lot more. With, you, you, yeah. could, you could probably add a couple of noughts onto the end of that. Wow. Yes. Um, but where had Madame Darris been for the fortnight between leaving the ship in Barry and being found dead in the River Ely? 
It was known that she'd taken a train from Barry to Cardiff on the day she left the ship, but no inquiries could discover where she'd been staying, and yet it was clear she had not been living rough. There was no evidence of robbery or foul play, and the inquest was actually happy with the conclusion that she was found drowned. It had taken five days from the discovery for the body to be interred in Cate's cemetery. But can we be confident that the mystery lady was who she said she was? As it happens, the Battle of Arras had taken place early in 1917, and the monastery there is dedicated to Saint Clair d'Arras. Could she have adopted a convenient alias? There was turmoil in Russia, uh, not only because of the First World War, but the Bolshevik Revolution had started at the beginning of 1917, leading to the abdication of Tsar Nicholas II. Uh, and many of his uh, family uh, and uh, close associates uh, would have been under some threat. So there was a lot of speculation at the time that she may have been one of these uh, members of the family. Indeed, uh, some people thought she may well have been one of the children. It's taken the best part of uh, 100 years uh, for evidence to be produced that actually demonstrates that the whole of the Tsar's family, immediate family, had died there. So we know she wasn't one of those, but who, who she really was, we still don't really know. She could have been connected to them, I suppose. I, I think it's, it's, it's very probable that she, she, she was connected yeah. uh, to the imperial uh, regime in Russia, but what that connection was, we, we probably will never know. A lot of mystery there. A lot of mystery. <laughs> now, war is uh, obviously not the only cause of uh, violence and injuries in the world. And in this cemetery, I found this a bit weird, but there's how many severed legs are buried here? Uh, altogether, we know of five severed legs in the cemetery now. Just the legs? Just the legs, yes. And the rest of the people are buried? Um, well, in uh, four cases... Uh, we find that the bodies are also buried in the cemetery, but not in not alongside their legs. <laughs> so weird. In, in the other case, we know that the person themselves is buried in Whitchurch. Is that normal for cemeteries to have sort of like dismembered body parts? Uh, I don't think it's um, unique. Um, I think we're aware that, of other cemeteries that have legs that have been buried or limbs that have been buried uh, but we're not aware that anybody can beat Cate's total of five that's quite impressive yes but, um, I mean nowadays uh, severed legs would not um, uh, be buried certainly wouldn't be buried separately normally any limbs that are taken off in hospital are now incinerated mm. uh, so it's, it's an out of date practice shall we say and it wouldn't happen today so one, we'll talk about a couple of, well, a couple of the cases surrounding two of the severed legs today. One is Edith Skirm. It, it's Skirm. Skirm, Edith Skirm. Again, this is another uh, case where information from old newspaper cuttings uh, helped to tell the story, really. Um, it was going through burial records that picked up the, the, the leg... The record just says, leg of female, and the burial was for a Miss Skirm. This was in 1883. Uh, but it very 
quickly, um, somebody in the Friends picked up a newspaper article which explained how Miss Skirm became separated from her leg. There were four headlines to the article. Terrible accident in the Gethley pit. Melancholy termination of a pleasure trip. Lady visitors crushed by a tram. And shocking industry injuries to Miss Skirm and Miss Cassie John. What was that second one? Melancholy end to a pleasure trip? Well, basically, yes, melancholy termination. Melancholy termination of a pleasure trip. That's one way of saying that a bunch of people got crushed by a runaway tram and had to have their legs amputated. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, the, the rest of the article explains that uh, eight young ladies had prevailed upon the colliery manager for some time to take them underground. And he eventually gave in to their request. As well as the manager, the party included four other men who were there to look after the ladies, and in some cases satisfy their own curiosity. The whole party went down about seven to 800 feet to the main level and walked about 300 yards along this when there was a tremendous roar uh, followed by a fully loaded tram crashing through a ventilation control door about 15 yards ahead of them. Although the group members tried to get out of the way, and ended up in, in, piled up in the coal dust and debris on the floor. All were badly shaken and bruised, but Miss Skirm and the other lady were more severely injured. It seems that some of the party fainted when they saw the nature of the injuries. The two ladies were quickly evacuated by tram and were soon be atta being attended by doctors on the surface. Their advice was that amputation was necessary for Miss Skirm's leg, Miss Skirm's father, who was the postmaster at Pentra, sought a second opinion from his own family doctor, who arrived from Cardiff the following day. However, the family doctor concurred with the original advice, and the local doctors carried out the operation under chloroform straight away. Thank God for chloroform. <laughs> That's right, yes. Um, but who was she? Uh, she was born in the Ronda in 1867, to Edward and Francis Skirm. Her father was both grocer and postmaster in Pentra. And it was quite a large family. Edith had three older brothers, two younger sisters, and three younger brothers. Um, and the whole family had moved to uh, 6 Richmond Terrace Park Place. Uh, this is the road that is now called Museum Place. Uh, they must have been quite well off because uh, the 1881 census showed that they employed two domestic servants. Uh, the loss of a leg didn't seem to deter Edith very much. In 1900, she married uh, an older man, Arthur Thomas Haddock, a coal salesman, and they took up residence in Church Road in Whitchurch. Uh, sorry. They had a daughter, Margaret Francis, who was born the following year, but sadly, Arthur died of pneumonia in the first months of 1907. That's kind of inspiring in a way. She clearly didn't let her disability stop her from living her life. She got married. That's right. Um, it does appear that she, she then spent much of the rest of her life uh, with a sister in Cathedral Road, uh, and she's now buried with her husband in St Mary's Churchyard in Whitchurch. Okay, so severed leg number two belongs to Amelia Newton. And she, the rest of her is buried in the cemetery, separate from her leg. Is that right? That, that's correct, yes. yes Amelia Newton um, 
we don't know an awful lot about her. Um, but she lost, she lost her leg when she was in her late 60s. So perhaps it was due to illness rather than accident. Her uh, uh, husband Henry died the following year, uh, leaving Amelia to cope. But she did manage to survive for at least another eight years, dying in July 1923. Uh, it seems she had no family and few friends, because when she died, she bequeathed, bequeathed her personal effects, equivalent to about £7,000 a day, uh, to Edwin Jones, the postman. Um, the strange thing, perhaps, is that uh, while she's buried in Section L, which is in the um, Anglican area of the cemetery, her leg is buried alone in the nonconformist area. Um, not quite sure whether she lost her leg because of the religious differences, or could this have been a case of what we now call body integrity identity disorder, where healthy individuals perceive one or more of their limbs or organs as alien to the rest of their body and wish to have it amputated. Oh, I've never heard of that before. <laughs> is that real? That's, that's real, yes. Oh, my God. It's rare, but it's real, yes. Wow. So you feel so disconnected from one part of your, like, your leg or something that you have to slice it off? That's right, yes, yes. Whoa. Never heard of that. It, it usually comes to light when people do it, um, try to do it themselves. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. OK, that makes me feel a little squeamish. <laughs> Moving on, I think. Yes, yes. OK, so there are... This is a story I find quite inspiring. Uh, Francis Shand... We'll talk a bit about her. Yes. Yes. Um, Frances Batty Shand is, is really interesting. Her grave um, shows that she was born... Uh, sorry. She was born in the West Indies. And uh, her father was a, a Scotsman who owned a plantation, while uh, her mother, uh, or common-law um, wife of... Um, her father, John, was um, a coloured woman. Uh, and this would have been in the 18... Th this would have been in the mid-19th uh, century, so... Wow. Mixed-race marriages are not all that common back then, safe to say. I, I, I think it would have been almost uh, forbidden in the so by society. Yeah, would it have been illegal? Uh, I'm not sure it would have been illegal, uh, but... It, it's quite clear that uh, the custom was uh, that uh, people who own plantations out, out there often wouldn't take their, their wives and family with them because of the conditions, um, but were then, uh, it was then accepted uh, that they might take common-law wives from uh, the, the slaves that they had on their estate. Now, I, I think it appears that John Shand... Uh, was responsible as a father, and although he couldn't marry uh, his, uh, his common-law wife, he did take responsibility for the children. And Francis uh, was, I think, the third of those children. Her brother John was some years older, 23 years older. Um, she had another elder sister, uh, but they were all sent to England to be, or to Scotland, in fact, uh, to be educated. Uh, so they were brought up well. Uh, Frances, when she was old enough, moved to Cardiff. And she was immediately uh, struck by the poor conditions 
uh, particularly orphans running around the streets, uh, but also uh, people who were blind, who uh, really had no one to help them or, or look after them. And so she, she lived with her brother John, who never married, and uh, she spent her time just helping people much more or much less fortunate than herself. Uh, in particular, uh, she started what was to become Cardiff Institute for the Blind, and that gradually grew as a, quite a, a, a big organisation, looking after many blind people and providing them with work. And uh, you can still see um, a memorial to her name in the form of Shand House on Newport Road. Although it's no longer the headquarters of the Blind Institute, which has since moved, the name is still on the building. Francis died in 1895, aged about 69. Um, at that time, by that time, she had moved to Switzerland. Um, we don't know quite what she did in Switzerland, uh, but she was anxious to be reunited with her brother John, and so she came back to Cardiff to be buried. That, I mean, she must have faced a fair bit of discrimination being a, a mixed-race woman in the 19th century, but she didn't let it, you know, she was still able to go on and achieve something pretty remarkable, help other people. I think uh, that's pretty inspiring. I think it's very inspiring. Uh, she, she must have been a, a complete rarity in this country. Uh, certainly there were, there were people bringing uh, coloured people as slaves um, back to this country at that time. But for somebody to come uh, into the country as an equal uh, was very unusual. Uh, but it must have been because of her uh, character and the fact that she was so interested in helping others that she was respected and, and, and given uh, due recognition. Okay, so next we'll talk a bit about Margaret Simpson. We're lucky here that um, one of the members of the Friends, uh, when she was sorting through her mother's papers, found references to the school that her mother went to in Richmond Road. And so she decided to take, uh, uh, carry out some further research about the school. It turns out that the school was run uh, by Margaret Simpson. And uh, Margaret had uh, originally come from, her family had originally come from Pembrokeshire. And uh, the family had had a, a pub in the city centre uh, Margaret married John, and John and Margaret taught at several schools in the centre of Cardiff in the late 1850s. Uh, but eventually they finished up at 45 Richmond Road, which was essentially a small private school. Uh, you can still see the building today, it's, it's not a particularly big house. Um, and she ran the school after her husband died which was shortly after the opening of the school, uh, Margaret ran the school and was known as its principal. Uh, she was helped by her daughters. And the, the, the school continued to operate as a school through the 1920s and 30s. And even in 1949, we know that it was still a place of learning. Um, and was referred to as St Margaret's Studio, with one member of the Simpson family, uh, one of Margaret's daughters, uh, still there. Wow. But uh, 
she must have been quite a, a dignified lady. Uh, there are uh, some pictures on record which show her uh, impeccably uh, groomed, uh, but looking quite stern as well. So a very typical uh, schoolmistress. <laughs> Okay, so changing topic here slightly, we've got a couple of quite unusual firsts buried in the cemetery. The first is Maria Dolores. She was the first woman, the first burial here, or the first woman to be buried here? Uh, she was the first burial here. It, it's Maria Dolores de Pico. De Pico. Uh, uh, she was the daughter of the Spanish consul. Uh, it seems rather strange today to think that <laughs> Cardiff would justify having a Spanish consul. Uh, we're going back to 1859, so still not a particularly big place, uh, but it was important enough to a lot of foreign countries uh, because of the importance of uh, coal at that time. Uh, she was only 25 years old, and she was in. We do not know what what she died of, but she was interred on the 10th of July, 1859. Um, the only, only 25. Only That's 25, young. yes. Uh, it, it, it seemed likely that a notable family would have had a, a, a quite impressive memorial erected, but in fact, the only marker there is one provided recently by bereavement services, um, a small wooden cross with a um, metal plate on it tell you that it is the most important grave or the uh, first grave in the cemetery. So she wasn't even given a headstone? She, as far as we can see, either, either she wasn't given one or it has disappeared over time. Oh. But it, it's, it's strange. The address of the Spanish consul was Cadiz House in Roth Road. Um, it's, it's now the road we would call Newport Road. And uh, some people may remember it as um, the location of the Oddfellows House um, some, some years ago. Um, but was it more than chance that made her the first burial? When you look at the burial record, you find that it was actually a few months before the second burial in the cemetery. Uh, so she must have been buried uh, when uh, possibly work on the cemetery was still proceeding. And it, it, there, there are, in some cultures, um, a, a view that it's unlucky to be the first body to be buried in a new cemetery. Well, someone's got to do it. <laughs> someone's got to be it, yes. But uh, So you do wonder if there might have been an ulterior motive. It may be somebody that uh, the Spanish may not have realised that there was any sort of uh, concern oh, about this. And it was an easy way to get over the problem. But uh, when she was buried, uh, the planting at least would have been in its infancy and it would have still looked more like the original uh, farmland uh, that had been bought for the cemetery at that time. So she probably would have been very lonely. Oh. Okay, now we've got another another female first, Harriet Bevan. Yes. Um, Lady Mayoress. That's right, Harriet Bevan. Um, she took the name Bevan from her husband, who was uh, a mayor of Cardiff. Uh, but she was born... Uh, Uh, Harriet Glazebrook in Derbyshire. Uh, she was one of about six children. But what is notable um, about her family and, uh, and the Bevan family is that they were 
uh, early temperance reformers and uh, both interested in Methodism. Uh, so they, so they made, a, made a good pair, shall we say. The, 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 the history can get slightly confusing because Ebenezer Bevan had married uh, a, a Harriet as his first wife, who had died quite young, and so the Harriet Glaze book became his second wife. Uh, one of the first daughters of um, the, uh, Ebenezer Bevan and his first wife was also called Harriet. <laughs> That's confusing. It, it, is, it can be very confusing. But our, our, our Harriet, uh, the second wife, um, having married Ebenezer Bevan in 1879, uh, still continued, to, she, she, she had written before she got married, and she continued to write after her marriage, and sometimes she still used her maiden name, uh, and sometimes she uh, used her married name. But uh, you can see that uh, the themes of uh, some of her works uh, endorse the temperance theme. She even wrote a ballad entitled Alice Lee, or The Lips That Touch Liquor Shall Never Touch Mine. Uh, this was very popular at the time. It's perhaps her most widely known poem. In all, she's credited with around 15 published works, mainly with religious or temperance themes. But her memorial in Catay Cemetery uh, is probably the least remarkable one you can find, looking a little bit like a bird bath. But she has a, a bigger uh, memorial to her name. Um, in the year of Queen Victoria's 50th uh, year on the throne, 1897, uh, was the year that Ebenezer Bevan was the mayor of Cardiff. Uh, the Bevans organised a public subscription for the mayoress chain to be worn by the Lady Mayoress as part of the mayoral regalia. The chain is perhaps far better than the mayor's chain. Hmm. It was made by Spiridion, a notable jeweller in Cardiff, and includes diamonds, rubies, emeralds, plus an enamelled portrait of Queen Victoria. And of course, the first name inscribed on the chain is Mrs E. Bevan. Good for her. Do you think she ordered it on purpose to be a much better chain? I like to think she did. Uh, well, the cost of the chain was raised by uh, subscriptions. Uh, so it was, it was a public subscription. Ah, OK. They used the money that was raised. I think uh, it was something of the order of £200 was raised. And again, if you add two noughts to that, that gives you an idea of how much money they had to spend on the chain. Yeah. She was obviously very respected, very important woman. And do we know why her grave is shaped like a birdbath? Uh, we've no idea at all. Uh, she she's, seems to be weird. buried on her own. Uh, although Ebenezer Bevan died after her, he seemed to choose to be buried with his first wife. Oh, the mysteries of the dead. We'll never know, I suppose. Stories of the Sisterhood was presented by Holly Morgan Davis and Alicia Joy Davis. It was produced by Harry Bly, with music by Elizabeth Grace Watson. Mm -hmm.